Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God in His Word, is 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 to 23. Chapter 6 of 2 Samuel is about the Ark of the Covenant being brought by David into his city, Jerusalem. So I thought it might be helpful if we spend a little time first in Exodus this morning. Specifically, if you would, to turn over to Exodus chapter 24 in the Bible. To the left is the second book of the Bible, 24 chapters in. Don't have a page number, but you'll get there. Exodus 24. Because I don't think you can make much sense of 2 Samuel 6 unless you have some framework for thinking about the ark. When the covenant was to be confirmed in Exodus chapter 24, Moses knew what to do. So starting in verse 4 of chapter 24, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Verse 5, And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in the basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And the text then says, Moses and Aaron and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses in verse 12, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone. And so Moses was on that mountain 40 days and 40 nights, it says, at the very end of Exodus 24. And there, with the covenant now established, the Lord begins to speak to Moses the specific instructions for the building of a sanctuary. Right? Because what is the result of being in covenant with the Lord? Well, the result is the Lord will be with you. So throughout the Bible, you, you read things like, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will make my dwelling among you. I will be a um, walk among you and will be your God. I will be with you even to the end of the age. All of it is what is promised to those in covenant with the Lord. So, Exodus 25, following the confirmation of the covenant, what do we get? The Lord says to Moses, speak to the people of Israel. And go to verse 8, Exodus 25. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. 
exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And then what's the very first thing the Lord describes in detail as he gives Moses the instructions for the tabernacle, the way by which he will dwell with his people? What's the most important component of it all? The thing which above all will signify that the covenant Lord is with them. Exodus 25, verse 10, they shall make an ark. Listen or follow as I read this. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. In modern day measurements, that's four feet by two and a half feet by two and a half feet. That's all the larger this is. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside shall you overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet, two rings on one side of it, two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it, and you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work shall you make them on the two ends of the mercy seat, one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall you make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings, their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim be, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. And listen to this, verse 22. There I will meet with you and from above the mercy seat from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. In other words, brothers and sisters, the ark isn't just a container for the copy of the law to go inside. It is that. But it's more than that. The space above the ark between the cherubim was the focal point of God's dwelling among his people. And how do you talk about the actual place where God dwells? Well, you say it's a throne because God's the king, right? Did you notice how the ark is described in our passage in verse 2 today? In 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, at the end of the verse, you can leave Exodus now and go back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel 6, verse 2, near the end of the verse, it's called the ark which is called by the name of the Lord, the covenant Lord, the Lord of hosts, who what? Who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is the working symbol in the history of Israel. Psalm 132 verse 7 refers to the ark as the footstool of the throne of Yahweh, 
The idea is that the Lord is enthroned in heaven. The Lord's always enthroned. The Lord's always the king. The Lord is enthroned in heaven and on earth. The ark is his footstool. So as we come to this critical moment in 2 Samuel, we need to understand that the ark signifies two things, covenant and kingship. The ark contains a copy of the law of the God, the God who would dwell with them, who according to these texts was then invisibly enthroned above the law. In other words, the ark was the visible symbol of the covenant God's divine kingship over his people who can now be with him. The God who dwells in their midst is their king. That's what the ark means. Covenant and kingship. And since 1 Samuel chapter 7, where has the ark been? Do you remember? It's like an age ago, I know. It had been captured by the Philistines in 1 Samuel 4. Remember how they toted the ark out like some kind of magic talisman? The Philistines captured the ark only then to endure the punishment of the God of Israel so that they then return it to the Israelites or try to in 1 Samuel chapter 6 when it goes on the cart, remember this, pulled by the two milk cows who just go straight to Beth Shemesh. How could you forget the scene? But then what did the people want to do with it? Remember, they wanted it taken away. The return of the ark was not welcomed by everyone. Seventy of the men at Beth Shemesh were struck down by the Lord that day. And so in 1 Samuel 6, verse 20, we read, Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Get him away from us. So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. So 1 Samuel 7 verse 1 said, And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And that's where it remained all these years. Saul never sought it. Saul didn't want it. But now David is king over Israel. David's not Saul. And as we've emphasized now several times, the most important thing about David's kingdom is that in David's kingdom, the Lord God was king. It would be just as Samuel had instructed in the initial covenant renewal ceremony in Gilgal, in 1 Samuel 12, we've talked about that now many times, how Samuel, in talking to Saul as the first king and to the people, states that the human king in Israel is to be unlike the kings of the nations around them because in Israel, the king is to be the agent of Yahweh's rule, Yahweh's kingship over his people. Saul never got that. Saul never wants the ark. But if that's right, 
And if you're on board with that, what then is the one thing you want to have happen to show that this is the case in your kingdom, to show that the Lord is the ultimate king? Answer, you bring the ark back. When David became the ruler of all Israel, which we talked about last week in its significance, now 2 Samuel 6 says he made a significant decision. The Ark of the Covenant would come to Zion. Because David understood what Saul never did. This is like the working thesis of all of 1 and 2 Samuel, that Yahweh was Israel's great king. The central focus and reality of the Davidic kingdom would be the presence of Yahweh with his people. And the interpretation of chapter 6 of 2 Samuel is tricky, and you can read different people taking this chapter very different ways. Here's mine. More than anything else, I want you to see that as I read it, what David wanted to accomplish here was 100% right. It wasn't going to be easy. Maybe it was not going to be as easy as David seemed to think it would be. There would be important lessons for this king to learn. And they are not comfortable ones. But I argue that fundamentally what David was doing in 2 Samuel 6 was exactly right. The chapter then essentially divides into two halves, and it's simply the two attempts that David makes to bring the ark into Jerusalem. And in verses 1 to 11, he fails. It's the failure of the first attempt, as I think David is learning to fear God's holiness. Verses 1 to 11. Then in verses 12 to 23, the rest of the chapter, we then see the success of the second attempt as David learns to rejoice in humility. And I think there's a connection between the two. Not real easy to pull it together in this way, but I think it's right. I think David is able to rejoice in humility in verses 12 to 23, the second attempt, because he has learned to properly fear God's holiness. And in the end, I will argue, it's both lessons that help us to properly worship the king. So let me try this. Verses 1 to 11, then, are the first attempt. And I mean, certainly David isn't going small here. He gathers 30,000 chosen men, the text says in verse 1. Now, chosen men, usually it just means troops. So there's 30,000 of those. But that wasn't all. Verse 2 says, David arose and went with all the people who were with him. Meaning that in addition to his men were, at least representatively, all those who were now identified with David and his kingdom, which we know from last week means all the tribes of Israel. In verse 5, this group is called all the house of Israel. In other words, what David was about to do is important for the entirety of Israel. Verse 2 then informs us that David went with his men and others, the text says, to do what? To bring the ark of God up from the place here called Baal Judah. 
which strikes us as odd and unfamiliar. But we know from the parallel passage to this text, which could be found in the book of First Chronicles, specifically in First Chronicles 13, no need to turn, but in First Chronicles 13, verse 6, that this name that's cited here is simply an alternate name for Kiriath-Jerim. Perhaps an earlier pagan name, not uncommon for the same place to go by two different names, depending on who's naming it. The point is that David and all Israel have now assembled at Kiriath-Jerim, about nine miles west of Jerusalem, where the ark has been left for some 70 years, because David knows it was time to return the glory to Israel. So we read about the arrangements in verse 3. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark, and perhaps we just suspect nothing at this point. Certainly David didn't seem to. Verse 5 seems like this was fun. This was loud. This was religious. David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord, the verse says. With songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Literally, the, the language used of celebrating there in verse 5 suggests there was happiness, there was laughter. And why not? They would be expressing their wonder over this king that God had given them and the promises that God had made to his people. Thousands upon thousands are processing in celebration. Until that laughter and singing is suddenly silenced, And the procession and the celebration is brought to a halt. And it had likely seemed insignificant in the moment of it. Verse 6. And when they, that is this procession of thousands celebrating, when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, that location is not known to us. We don't know where that is exactly. Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And I think you'd, you probably would have had to be watching pretty closely to even notice what had happened. Thousands upon thousands of people in procession. I mean, thanks to Uzzah's reaction, the ark remained safely on the cart, right? The procession could continue, or so you would think. But then we come to verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. Do you feel how jarring that is? The anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Now, I don't know how quickly he died, but it had to have been relatively quick. The music stopped. The joyful shouts become a trembling silence. This was the Lord's doing. 
And all we're told in 2 Samuel 6 is that it was because of his error that he died. His error. You mean preventing the precious Ark of the Covenant from falling off the cart? How's that an error? Friends, uh, you, you are, you're not what I think of as normal if you don't at least initially react to that by taking some kind of offense. I mean, doesn't that offend you? Doesn't that offend you? I mean, Uzzah was only trying to help. Why did Yahweh kill him? As David rightly tries to bring the ark and the people are celebrating with loud shouts and cymbals and... Why? Well, it's not easy to sort that out just from 2 Samuel 6 because our chapter says, all our chapter says, is that there was a reason for what happened. What was it? What was the error, verse 7 references? Well, as you might guess, if you don't already know it, it has to do with the handling of the ark. Long ago, the Lord had given clear instructions to Moses, the same Moses to whom the instructions of how to build the ark were given, clear instructions about the way in which the ark, among other things, was to be moved when Israel transported it. And you don't have to turn there now, but if you want to jot it down, you can look at it later. It's in Numbers 4, where this is spelled out in great detail. And we find out that, first of all, the ark was to be covered with several layers of covering. And then it says very specifically that the ark was to be carried by the priests, a specific descendant of Levi, in the line of a specific descendant of Levi, by means of the poles attached to the ark. Remember how Moses said they were never to be detached. And then critically, Numbers 4, verse 15 says, they must not touch the holy things, including the ark, lest they die. And in fact, verse 20 of Numbers 4 makes clear that they weren't even so much as to look on the holy things for a moment, lest they die. Now you only have to back up again to verse 3 of our chapter to see that none of what Numbers 4 had prescribed is being followed here. So look at verse 3, it says, And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, not with the poles, and brought it out of the house of Abinadab. And Uzzah and Ahio the sons were driving the new cart with the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And the thing is, I'm sure it was a very careful and a very dignified procession. And there's, But there's no mention of the ark being covered. And if, if anything, the use of a brand new cart is reminiscent of how the Philistine priests and diviners had sent the ark back to Israel. Remember? It wasn't the way God had said the ark was to be moved. Things aren't right here. And then the moment comes and Uzzah reaches out and touches the ark. You would have too. And now Uzzah's dead. And the reaction that you and I might have to that, I think, isn't unlike David's reaction in verse 8. 
Look at verse 8 of our text. And David was angry, it says. Because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. That's the Hebrew verb Perez, just transliterated into English there. That's significant because that verb Perez literally means to break out. It's used three times in that verse, though you only pick up on twice in the English. The key is that it's the same root as is used four times in chapter 5, verse 20, just above our reading, where it was said about what the Lord did to the Philistines. Chapter 5, verse 20. And David came to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there, and he said, The Lord has broken through, Perez, my enemies before me like a breaking flood. Perez again. Therefore, the name of that place is called Baal Perezim, meaning the Lord had broken out against his enemies. But now you see, the same Yahweh who breaks out against David's enemies is the same Yahweh who breaks out against David's friend. Now, the text is careful. It says David was angry because the Lord had done that. Not that he was angry at the Lord for doing it. Not exactly. But brothers and sisters, he was deeply troubled by what had happened. As I imagine you and I also are when we read about this event. <laughs> I just think it's important to say this, that David's anger, and maybe our anger, about what happened here, that doesn't mean God was wrong. The holiness of the ark had been violated. The chief symbol of the presence of God had been treated carelessly. Maybe with the best of intentions. But it was not in accordance with the Lord's own word on the matter. And I just, I get it. We can object if we like to this. The fact is, we tend to forget what sort of God we face. Maybe David did too a little. I was thinking this week of that line, I can't even quote it, I didn't write it down, but that line in the Chronicles of Narnia, where the question, I think it's the beaver who asks, right? Of Aslan, is he safe? Oh no, he isn't safe. He's good, but he isn't safe. God is real. God is holy, brothers and sisters. We cannot discard what God says. It's from this anger, then, that David has initially in response, that David then moves to fear in verse 9. Look at verse 9. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And this is interpreted in different ways, and as you can imagine. 
As I read it, I think David's question there is good. I think David's question is right. I think it's the opposite of presumption. I think this is the king of God's people doing, as Deuteronomy 17 verse 19 says in the Law of Kings that we referred to a few times, it says the king must learn to fear the Lord. It's like what Samuel had said in Gilgal in 1 Samuel 12, verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice, not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. If both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. I can't read in between the lines deep enough to know, but is there perhaps some element of presumption there as David tries to bring the ark to Jerusalem? Maybe. But now David needs time to sort out what had gone wrong. And for now, David abandons his plan to bring the ark all the way to Jerusalem. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. We're not told why David chose the house of Obed-Edom. He was a Gittite, the text says. That would typically mean that he was someone from Gath, that is, of the Philistines. Why take the ark there? Is it because no Israelite would want it now? Maybe. Was this Obed-Edom person someone who had come over to David, maybe, during the time that David had spent there in Gath? We're not told. We don't know. Though some do think so, and some think that this is the same Obed-Edom who is then mentioned in 1 Chronicles 15 as being included in the company of the Levites who have responsibility for the ark. It's possible. I don't know for sure. No one does. But if that's the case, then what we have here is Yahweh's willingness to bless this foreigner. And word of it comes to David in verse 12. And look at what it says. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. Because of the Ark of God. It seems then that David gets the point now. Yahweh's true intent is to bless, not destroy his people via the Ark. The warnings in Numbers 4 are given to prevent what happens in 2 Samuel 6. David's intention to bring the Ark to Jerusalem was the right one. But David had to learn an important lesson about the God he sought to honor. And he had, I think. And that, I think, becomes evident in the second attempt to bring the ark to Jerusalem, where I'm suggesting David learns to rejoice in humility. So, verse 12 continues, David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And while our author doesn't draw it out, the way then in verse 13, how it's written, tells us that the ark's now being carried as it needs to be. Right? There's no mention now of any new cart or oxen. Instead, verse 13, when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... <laughs> 
he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. If there had been any presumption in the earlier procession, it's gone now. This time there was caution. And if you know Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 15, we get the details of this exact event, the parallel text, more precisely, where it says, And the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with the poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. You hear the issue? The lesson had been learned. And through the rest of the chapter, despite all the emotions that are probably still there from verses 1 to 11, you can't miss the overriding theme of verses 12 to 23. It's joy. They bring this ark into the city of David with rejoicing, verse 12 says. And there's David leaping and dancing before the Lord with all his might, the text says. And there's the people shouting, and there's the ram's horn sounding away. This was the king and the whole family of God's people together, rejoicing as they brought the ark of the Lord to Jerusalem. So now we bring both parts of this chapter together because now there's deep joy. But there's deep joy with a proper sense of Yahweh's holiness underneath it. And I think that can be true for us as well. Brothers and sisters, a fearful sense of God's holiness doesn't suppress joy. It stimulates it. Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Rejoice with trembling. Do you have a sense of both of those things in your walk with the Lord? Do you have a sense of how they work together? David becomes the picture of it now. We see it in David. His is now a joy with humility. Verse 14 makes a point of saying David was wearing a linen ephod. You see it there, verse 14? As he was dancing before the Lord. Why say that? Why point out that David's wearing a linen ephod? I think it's pretty simple. I think it's simply to tell us that the linen ephod isn't the royal robes of the king. This is a simple linen item of clothing. Evidently, it's all David was wearing. It was worn by the ordinary priests. In other words, David's was a deliberate, joyful humbling of himself before the Lord. All the might, the text says, of this great warrior, this triumphant king of all Israel, all of it is directed to dancing before the Lord, the text says. Or to put it another way, maybe this is the text telling us that it wasn't about David. David danced before the Lord. That's what the presence of the ark is all about. The point then is driven home as we read about the ark making its entrance into the holy city, how it was set in its place, the language is, finally. 
that David had done all he could to provide a proper place for the ark. He'd pitched a tent, which just means a tabernacle-like structure of some kind, for it. But then I think it's especially in the end of verse 17 of our passage that we see David's full intention. Look there, and David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, men and women, the bread, the meat, the raisins to each one. And the presence of God, I just think you're supposed to sense now, is with his people. The chief symbol of the covenant and kingship of God is in its place. And it might be easy to miss, but that's why I started in Exodus where I did in Exodus 24. Because what does David do when this is so? Verse 18 says he offers the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, just as Moses had done in Exodus 24 as the covenant was established, right? The basis for the presence of the Lord with his people, the covenant. David got it right. And so everything seems peaceful and content. When we read at the end of verse 19, Then all the people departed, each to his house. And David returned to bless his household. I mean, what an occasion this is. Only there's one other figure in 2 Samuel 6 whom we've yet to discuss. It's Michal. David's wife, but as the narrator is keen to point out, Saul's daughter. She's there in verse 16, ever so briefly, just to prepare us for the way this chapter ends. Look at verse 16. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord in the linen ephod, right? And she despised him in her heart. And it's not until David returns home then at the end of the chapter that we understand. I think if we're reading this chapter right, what we see is that whatever's going on in Michal's heart, because it's her heart that's the issue according to verse 16, Michal's disgust is the exact inversion of what David has learned. It's the inversion of David's humility with joy before the Lord. Her objection essentially amounts to the fact that David wasn't acting like she thinks a king should act. How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Do you hear her objection? Where's the dignity, the decorum, the outward kingly appearance, David? A king has a certain image to maintain, don't you know that? Was this the glory of the king of Israel? Asks the daughter of Saul. And brothers and sisters, if I've got it right, then the answer is actually yes. <laughs> this is the glory of the King of Israel. 
Whereas the dignity, the power, the splendor of the king are too important to the daughter of Saul, David had learned to put them aside. He had abandoned his royal dignity before the Lord as an act of glad humility. Why? Because David knew who the real king was. You see, it was before the Lord, David replies to Michal in verse 21. Look at his statement. I will celebrate before the Lord. For David, humility is dignity. No place for arrogance or show. Not before the Lord of hosts, the covenant God, the King. David would humbly rejoice in the greatness and goodness of his God. Will you? Will I? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.